This week, listening in on a busy whale banquet. I mean, I guess we were amazed at the number of vocalizations we received in our data set. And how do you know where you are when you're not moving? In our own previous work, we excluded explicitly from our analyses these times when the animal was still. So basically, we just hadn't been looking in quite the right place. Plus, the researchers alert to bursts of radio waves from distant galaxies. I had definitely intended to lie in that day, but the universe had other ideas. This is the Nature Podcast for March the third, twenty sixteen. I'm Adam Levy, and I'm Kerry Smith. First up this week, how does an animal know where it is when it stops moving? That sounds like the kind of question a curious toddler might ask. I'll have you know that I actually have the mental age of a very precocious ten-year-old. Though even I was surprised to find that this question, "How does an animal know where it is when it stops moving?" is actually the first sentence of a Nature paper this week. You see, we understand pretty well how animals create a mental picture of their location when they're moving around. But the parts of the brain they use for that don't seem to be doing much when they stop moving. So how do they, or we for that matter, have a sense of place when they're standing still? Lauren Frank and colleagues from the University of California, San Francisco, have done research on rats to try to get to the bottom of this pretty fundamental question. I gave him a call to see why it's proven such a difficult question to answer. Our approach to date has been to study animals and their sense of where they are when they're moving, and in fact, the rest of the time when the animals are stopped, the general thought in the field was that the activity in the hippocampus, which is where we see things related to where the animal is, is no longer really about where the animal is. It might be about what the animal's thinking about—that is, where it might have been or where it might be going—but it wasn't really at all clear what's going on all of the time when the animal is just sitting still. Now I can definitely see why it would matter if I didn't know where I was while I'm moving because I might bump into something, I might trip over something. Why does it matter that I know where I am when I'm standing still? First of all, a lot of things happen to us when we're standing still. So a lot of our memories are not necessarily of us going places, but we might have a memory of a conversation at a table somewhere where we're just sitting there. Discussing something with someone. Similarly, actually, a lot of the things that the hippocampus does, it actually does while the animal is still. So、um, there are various tasks, things like what's called contextual fear conditioning, where animals learn to be afraid and exhibit fear by holding still in a place. So the general idea is a huge amount of our experience actually doesn't happen in motion, physically at least, and so we'd think that the hippocampus would have some way of. Encoding ongoing experience at those times, or representing sort of what the where the animal was, the overall context, so that it would create memories or of the experiences that happened while it wasn't moving. So, how do animals, when they're moving, know where they are? Well, so what we think happens is they create in their hippocampus sort of an ongoing record of current location or ongoing pattern of activity, from which we think the animal can tell where it is at any moment in time. Well, can't animals just remember where they were when they stopped moving and just kind of keep that in mind? One would think so. The problem is that a lot of the signatures of that place field activity, it's called, when they're moving, th were thought to go away when the animal stopped, and that was the puzzle. If these signatures of activity go away when the animal stopped, what's happening there? How does the animal possibly remember it? So, how does an animal actually know where it is when it stopped moving? Given that the mechanisms which seem to locate it when it is moving seem not to be operating. 
So what we discovered was that there seems to be a basically a specialized circuit or a specialized area in the hippocampus. And it seems to have a lot of neurons in it that are actually specialized for this. That is, across different places, they keep activity related to where the animal is, and they specifically ramp up their activity when the animal isn't moving. Why, why do you think no one has spotted this before? Why hasn't this been something that's come up in previous experiments? In our own previous work, we excluded explicitly from our analyses these times when the animal was still because we thought that either the activity was related to memory, and so we studied that memory-related activity specifically, but we didn't look at all of the other times when the animal is still when it didn't seem to be replaying memory. So basically, we just hadn't been looking in quite the right place. This kind of sense of place, it seems like the kind of thing that's so fundamental, it's weird to imagine that there's actually a specific network in the brain responsible for it. So what would actually happen if a network like this got disrupted? Yeah, so presumably, at least the way we're looking at it, it may be that when the animal was moving, there, or when a person hypothetically was moving, there would be a perfectly good sense of location. And then Basically, when that stopped, this other network would be supposed to be turned on and then would just wouldn't, which would mean that sense of self-location would disappear. So did you notice any other times when this particular activity was, uh, was seen? We did. And, and to our surprise, actually, we found that this activity continues into sleep. So um, at a particular part of sleep, we found that these neurons continue to signal where the animal was, even though it was quite clearly sleeping. And so the thought is that perhaps as the animal is waking up, the system kicks in so that the system is ready to say, okay, here I am, where, you know, where would I need to go if I need to escape, or what do I need to do if I'm here? And so you know, one of the things we, you, know, you note is when you wake up in the morning and you're in a familiar place, you know instantly where you are. Would this have anything to do with the reason I don't fall out of my bed every night? <laughs> it's certainly possible. We do roll around, and presumably when we roll around, we're in a lighter phase of sleep where we have learned you know, to be aware of edges and things. So it's certainly possible that having your brain know that you're in bed helps, helps it program it to not fall out of bed. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for answering that question so seriously. <laughs> sure, why not? You know, I'm a scientist. I have to think about everything. That was Lauren Frank. Check out the full study over at nature.com forward slash nature. Coming up in the research highlights, scaring raccoons witless to rebalance an ecosystem. But first, to an underwater environment showcased like never before. Researchers have a hard time figuring out what lives beneath the waves, but one team has gathered more answers than even they were expecting. Just a quick audio note, you'll get more out of this package if you wear stereo headphones. Here's Kerry. It's not that marine mammals are necessarily shy. They just occupy such enormous ranges that the chances are, even if you go looking for them, they're going to be hard to find. Researchers have often relied on visual surveys, spotting them by eye when they come to the surface to breathe, or on acoustic surveys using underwater microphones to pick up their calls. Panima Ratalal and her team wanted to do better. Ever since her undergrad degree in Singapore, Ratilal has been on and off boats doing ocean surveys. Oh, I love it. I love doing experiments at sea. Ratilal is at MIT in Boston, where she and her team have been working on a listening technique that's a high-res version of previous methods. We'll come back to how it works in a minute, but let me tell you first what happened when they used it. For a couple of weeks in October 2006, they went out to test it in an area about 100 kilometres off the coast of Boston. As soon as they deployed it, 
they heard from a lot of marine mammals. The funny thing is, they weren't originally listening for them. Well, we were interested in studying the um, behaviour of spawning herring. We set out to look for the fish, but when we were out at sea, we did um, hear, um, especially the sounds of humpback whales, because you could hear them through the ship hull. And then when they got back to shore... I mean, I guess we were amazed at the, uh, at the, the number of vocalisations we received in our data set because we had like between 20 to 25,000 um, vocalisations per day. Usually, surveying the oceans is a laborious and long-winded process. Researchers get in a boat and then... The entire survey takes about, you know, two weeks... And they basically have to make a lot of interpolations from these measurements. Instead, the method developed by MIT scientists is a lot faster. You can sense an area that's roughly about 100 kilometres wide, maybe slightly larger than the state of Connecticut, within 75 seconds. It's not just that it's quicker, it's also much higher resolution. There's a lot of noise in the ocean, and an array of just a handful of hydrophones can struggle to pick up enough signal. So the team used a string of 160 and combined the signal. Having so many hydrophones also means you can survey all around the area in a big circle. We scan all 360 degrees around the array and um, if we see uh, or if we hear uh, specific sounds from a marine mammal, we, 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 we note their time as well as the direction from which the sound is coming from. So Pernima... Who was making all this noise? There were a lot of uh, culprits (laughs) making these sounds. Um, I would say the most vocal um, among the species were the fin whales. We detected between 10,000 to 18,000 fin whale calls a day. And the second most um, abundant um, calls we received were from humpbacks. received about um, over 2,000 calls per day. And then um, we also received calls from blue whales, say whales, as well as uh, minke whales um, for the baleens. And then we heard the classic um, you know, whistles of orca whales, the killer whales. I, I, I think in some ways this is quite novel. Um, because most of the times, in terms of the acoustic studies, the, the focus is usually on a uh, single uh, species or at most two different species and a small group of uh, whales that they are um, listening to. But in this study, our ability to sense um, these sounds you know, uh, is, is quite wide. And that also meant they could figure out not just who was in the area, but where the different species hung out. Using their data, we've recreated this audio graphic, if you like, of the environment from a couple of hours of the survey. And just to let you know, it works best on good stereo headphones. Those are the humpbacks. A population of fin whales in the southwest. Say whales, that low rumble in the south. More fins overlapping with the easterly humpbacks. 
and finally the whistle of the odontocetes, the orcas, moving around quite a bit in the south. The data reveal an organisation to the feeding frenzy of herring spawning season. Whales hung out in species groups, and although there was some overlap, they appeared to have regular hunting grounds. Some species, mostly the baleen whales, the humpbacks, the says, the blue whales, they called when they were feeding. That's because they group fish together and swallow thousands at once. They need to be able to communicate. The tooth whales, says Ratalal and her team, they didn't correlate their calls to their dining choices, as they just hunt small fish groups. This kind of ecosystem-level insight has been difficult to get with lower-resolution techniques, and data like this could help plan out conservation efforts. Because we can sense these really huge areas, and we can um, track their motions, so it's an it's a ideal tool to do that kind of study and to you know, monitor their behaviours over time. And it won't be long before Panima's back on a boat. She's spent plenty of time at sea, even since this data set was collected. You know, the Gulf of Maine was very interesting. We got like 25 to, you know, about 20 to 25,000 calls per day. In other ocean environments, um, we got like roughly 10 times more. So it really varies ocean by ocean. So we are very excited about this new data. That was researcher and seafarer Panima Ratalal at MIT in Boston. Check out the paper at nature.com slash nature. And on Twitter, we've uploaded a great illustration of some of the whale species by Jordan Beck-Von-Pekotz, together with Perny Maratilal and Nicholas Macris. Check that out at Nature Podcast. Still to come, remember those powerful bursts of radio waves from galaxies far away? Well, they're back again, and this time they're repeating. That's after the research highlights with Curry Look. Millions of years ago, the Antarctic ice sheet retreated inland when atmospheric carbon dioxide levels were not that much higher than they are now. Researchers drilled out a long core of sediment from McMurdo Sound in Antarctica. They found that the ice sheet melted the most when carbon dioxide levels were 500 parts per million or more. Today's levels about 400 parts per million and rising. The researchers conclude that the Antarctic is highly sensitive to changing carbon dioxide levels. The paper was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Predators at the top of the food chain have important effects that cascade down through an ecosystem. New research shows that fear of those predators alone can trigger similar effects. Along the shores of the Gulf Islands of British Columbia and Canada, wild raccoons forage freely. That's because humans have largely eliminated the raccoon's predators, cougars and wolves. To instill fear in the raccoons, Researchers broadcast recordings of dog barks and howls. They found that just hearing these recordings caused the raccoons to drastically decrease their foraging. This resulted in a boost in the numbers of some crabs and fish that the raccoons normally eat. You can find the study in the journal Nature Communications. Back in December last year, we reported on a paper about mysterious bursts of cosmic radio waves called fast radio bursts. They were only discovered in 2006, and despite loads of papers about them, no one knows where they actually come from. Sharmini Bundell spoke to authors from two recent Nature papers to see if they've managed to figure out what they are yet. Fast radio bursts are so hot right now. They're also so confusing right now. Just a few months ago, astronomer Kiyoshi Misui from the University of British Columbia 
told The Nature Podcast. When I first heard about the phenomena, I was pretty skeptical that they weren't just some radio communication. Masui was right to be skeptical. These radio signals are peculiar. They look almost like the signals you get from pulsars in our galaxy, except that they seem to be coming from outside the galaxy. But as Evan Keane explains, this doesn't make sense. Anything that shows a bright, brief burst like that in our galaxy, we know about. So pulsars are a particular type of star. They emit pulses like this quite regularly. But if you move those out of our galaxy, they're not bright enough to still be seen. We don't really know anything else that makes very bright bursts. So what could these mystery signals be made by? Evan Keane is an astrophysicist with the Square Kilometre Array organisation, who's been leading a project at the Parkes Telescope in Australia. Rather than looking through old data to find fast radio bursts, the project set up a supercomputer to monitor live data. When we find a fast radio burst now, we, we know within a few seconds, and our computing system will in fact send us an email and say, a fast radio burst just went, just went off. Perhaps you should wake up and uh, do some, get some more telescopes to look at that part of the sky. So is this an email to you? Are you getting emails in the middle of the night and quickly leaping out of bed? Yes, exactly. So this fast radio burst that I reported in, uh, in, in our paper from last week, uh, in fact, I was in South Africa at the time and I had definitely intended to lie in that day. <laughs> but the universe had other ideas. With everyone springing into action, there were soon telescopes all over the world, and some in space, all pointing in the same direction. So, from discovering the fast radio bursts at Parks, you have a patch on the sky, and you know, well, there's a fast radio burst somewhere within that patch. So you need to zoom in. So what we did was, we arranged for a second telescope to take an image of that entire region. And th what that does is it, give, it has a much higher resolution, so it's like getting a, a HD version of that uh, patch of sky. And it turns out there's a galaxy there. Keane's team spotted an afterglow of radio waves coming from the galaxy. If the burst did come from somewhere in there, then it could be that the burst was caused by a dramatic collision and merging of two older stars. That idea fits with the type of galaxy it is. But the problem is that since Keane's paper was published last week, it's already been challenged. Data collected just this weekend suggests that the link between the original fast radio burst and the afterglow could just be a coincidence. Those new results haven't been peer-reviewed, so the jury's still out on that, but another team have been watching a different fast radio burst recently. I asked researcher Jason Hessels what the main theories are to explain fast radio bursts. Uh, I think it's fair to say that there are more theories than there are actually observed events. Um, so some of the theories that exist are you could have a, a neutron star, which is a very, very dense star that's formed after a supernova explosion. You could have a neutron star, for instance, that is extremely rapidly rotating, but as it starts to slow down, it's no longer able to support itself against its own gravity and it will collapse onto itself into a black hole. And that can, in one of the theories at least, produce a, a bright radio flash. Events like the formation of black holes or supernova explosions are cataclysmic. They can only really happen once. And this fits with most of the fast radio bursts we've seen. Remember Kyoshi Masui from the previous podcast episode? He said... So a fast radio burst um, looks very much like a pulsar, except you see it once and you never, ever see it again. There have been 15 of them discovered now, and we've followed up these uh, the locations where we saw them uh, and have never seen a repeated event. But that was in December. And as we've seen, in the world of fast radio bursts, things move fast. Jason Hessel's team had found an ordinary fast radio burst back in 2012 and decided to check that patch of sky again, just to make sure there was nothing else there. 
It fell to McGill graduate student Paul Schultz to analyse all the data. But as he explains, it didn't go as expected. I saw something that was very obviously consistent with the original fast radio burst that we discovered. And so I immediately you know, got quite excited. <laughs> At first I didn't believe it, but I kept looking through uh, the rest of the data and there were even more bursts. Multiple fast radio bursts from the same location. There was no way this was a coincidence, but it was completely unprecedented. Paul quickly sent an email round to the rest of the team, entitled a minor point of interest regarding the Spitler burst. The implications for possible sources were clear to the team. The fact that the Arecibo fast radio burst source repeats uh, indicates that it can't possibly originate in a cataclysmic event. It has to be a source that, that, that survives and can continuously uh, create these kind of bursts. Fortunately, cataclysmic events like black holes and supernovas weren't the only ideas out there. This repetition fits with the idea of a young, highly magnetised, rapidly spinning neutron star. Sort of like a souped-up version of the pulsars we know from our own galaxy. But remember how Evan Keane thought that maybe old stars merging together could cause the bursts? This repeating result doesn't fit with that at all. So it's possible that one of the results is incorrect because they, they really very much contradict each other. Now, luckily, there's an escape route. It's possible that fast radio bursts are actually from two distinct uh, populations of, of astronomical sources, that there are two, at least two physical origins for the fast radio burst. If Keane's results end up being disproved, it could be that all fast radio bursts are actually repeating, and we just haven't detected them yet. Or, as Jason says, there could be more than one type of burst. Either way, it certainly sounds like we'll be hearing a lot more about them. You know, after almost a decade of, of, of puzzling over what these sources are and making not a huge amount of, of observational advance, all of a sudden things seem to be coming together. And I strongly suspect by the, by the end of the year we'll have a much, much better idea of what these sources are. So there we go. You heard it here first. We'll have to get Jason back on at the end of 2016 to see if he was right. Thank you to Jason Hessels, Evan Keane, Paul Schultz and Kyoshi Masui for talking to us. You can find both the papers at nature.com forward slash nature, as well as a news story with an update on the new potentially contradictory results, as well as the papers we've just discussed. So time now for our news chat, and Celeste Beaver joins us in the studio. Hi, Celeste. Hi. So first up, let's take a look at what's been happening to science in the Ukraine. Yeah, pretty uh, difficult situation there right now. Ukraine is in the news a lot at the moment, mainly to do with Russian-supported militias fighting with the Ukrainian forces in various regions. There's also been some recent political turmoil where there was a no-confidence vote in the prime minister. However, he managed to hang on. Meanwhile, sort of in the background, there's all this stuff going on in the world of science that mainly surrounds two different um, laws that were passed quite close to each other and are completely contradictory and are creating a lot of problems for scientists. So what were these two contradictory laws? One of the laws is all about upgrading the National Academy of Sciences of Ukraine, which is the major scientific organisation in that country. This has long been deemed something that's very necessary because the Scientific Academy is seen as outdated um, and unable to kind of move with the times. However, this comes into conflict with another law that's part of an austerity budget that's been passed due to all kinds of problems the country's dealing with, a lot of them stemming from the conflict with Russia in the eastern part of Ukraine. 
So there's huge financial pressure. There are coal mines and factories that have closed. There's massive inflation. There's all kinds of economic problems. So they've got both these laws. On the one hand, they have this law to upgrade the scientific academy. On the other, they have massive slashes in the amount they can spend. How urgent is it that this academy is updated? Well, it's something that has been talked about for a long time. The National Academy of Sciences of Ukraine is a very interesting organisation, a Soviet-era that's been criticised for many years now for being outdated and in need of a big upgrade. They still have a kind of very opaque way of awarding funding for different projects, which again dates back to their history. They've also got ageing members. Um, in fact, the person who runs it is the 97-year-old metallurgist who's run the academy for decades. And it's actually quite funny, but when I was editing the um, story, I was looking through our archive and I discovered that 10 years ago, uh, in 2006, we'd written a story about the National Academy of Sciences of Ukraine. And then we'd mentioned the age of the person who runs it, which was 87. But he's still there. Not that he's not doing a good job, but the people are getting very old. And this is this gives the impression that they're very resistant to change. So given all these cuts that are taking place, what are the prospects like for young scientists in the Ukraine? Yeah, not very good. And that's actually what people are most worried about. Uh, so the country's employment laws tend to protect the people who are already in employment, whereas young scientists don't have that protection. And yet, at the same time, they're probably the group that's most likely to be capable of using science to help foster some kind of economic recovery in the country. And it's the economic problems that are the root of the whole issue. Now, of course, Ukraine's problems don't unfortunately end with austerity. How has the Russian annexation of the Crimean Peninsula in 2014 affected things for science. That's also caused problems. There was a radio telescope based in the Crimea. Ukraine's only research ship was based there. And there's also botanical gardens. All those things are now inaccessible to scientists. And moreover, the Ukrainian government expects scientists to cut off ties with their former Crimean colleagues um, and any kind of collaborations because that would be seen as legitimising the Russian occupation there. It seems like a very difficult context in which to do scientific research at the moment. But one place there seems to be a bit more cause for optimism is India. What's been happening in India? Yesterday, the Indian government announced its annual budget, which included how much it's going to give to the various scientific departments. And there was some good news. The Department of Science and Technology, which is the major science funder, got a big boost of, I think, 17%. However, there was also a lot of people in the field of biotechnology were interested in the budget. And this is because they were hoping that a plan to really kind of turbocharge India's biotechnology industry was going to be fleshed out. And this plan was unveiled in December and it was very ambitious, this idea that similar to the way India had made big economic gains about 20 years ago with its IT boom, that this could be replicated now with genomics and a big kind of biotech genomics revolution. So how, how much more money have they actually got for this project? Yeah, so it's a really good question. As everyone was watching, they got a 12% increase on what they got last year. So that's also 44.7 billion rupees, which is $650 million dollars. And it's important to look at that in the context of how much they need. We'd uh, interviewed the secretary of the Department of Biotechnology ahead of the budget announcement. And he said that the department needed to get a hike of twice that, 25 to 30%. However, after the budget, he said this was still modest good news that they got the 12%. 
Um, he noted that last year, for the first time, the biotech budget wasn't slashed halfway through the year, which is what often happens with the um, Indian budget allocations. And he also said that he thought they could um, make up the difference from a range of other funding sources, a lot of them aimed at startups and entrepreneurs. It sounds like a hugely broad project. What exactly are they hoping to achieve with it? So right now, Indian biotech mainly consists of companies called contract research organisations, which carry out clinical trials on behalf of pharmaceutical companies, and also generic drugs, which are copies of branded drugs. And those are very successful, but they're not especially innovative. And what India wants to do now is take advantage of genomics and big data processing and bring that together with biology to turn it into a hub for the analysis of masses and masses of genomics information. Celeste, thanks a lot for joining us. And if you want to check out these news stories and others, go to nature.com forward slash news. That's it for this week. Just before we go, I had to bring you this clip from the interview with Panima Ratalal, who was listening in on those whales. We recorded our conversation not long after the big announcement from LIGO. You know that yesterday there was this big scientific story about how the universe sounds like. And if you play the sound of the gravitational wave... It actually sounds very much like one of these uh, clicks of the uh, minky whale. The the universe sounds like um, a minky whale. (laughs) Or maybe LIGO picked up the sound of two minky whales colliding. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. 